This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Major Garrett in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, Democracy's Stress Test. Americans are worried about voting, violence, and disinformation. President Biden delivered his message for the 2022 campaign last week, putting former President Trump and the so-called MAGA extremists he leads squarely on the midterm stage. The Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. In his first rally since the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago as part of an investigation into the handling of classified documents, the former president, who spoke for nearly two hours, responded. Republicans in the MAGA movement are not the ones trying to undermine our democracy. We are the ones trying to save our democracy. The committee investigating the January 6th assault on the Capitol prepares its next move. We'll ask Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, a key Democrat on the panel, what to expect. Voter turnout set records in 2018 and 2020. Will new voting laws break the streak or sustain it? We will hear from Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. And we will talk with former Massachusetts governor and the former head of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division, Deval Patrick. Plus, we will ask two experts who study online extremism what can be done to combat the problem and whether fears of unrest around the midterms are warranted. It is all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret is taking some time off. Labor Day typically marks the kickoff of the home stretch of an election year. As Americans look ahead to the midterms this November, there is broad and deep anxiety in the country about the health of our democracy. A new CBS News poll this morning shows 72 percent of Americans think U.S. democracy is under threat. Why? The top answers include the influence of money in politics, potential for political violence and attempts to overturn elections. Our next hour will focus on these fault lines, fears, and some potential solutions. We begin with CBS News senior national correspondent Mark Strassman with a look at how we got here. When I'm governor, we're going to take a sledgehammer to these damn electronic voting machines. Take Arizona's Carrie Lake or Pennsylvania's Doug Mastriano. You know, we the people are pissed. Republican nominees for governor and election deniers evangelists of the big lie. CBS News uh, election expert David Becker. What's really important for voters to understand is our process is actually as secure and transparent and professional as it's ever been. And yet since the 2020 election, at least 39 states changed or updated voting laws, often spurred by invented claims of widespread election fraud. Texas imposed new ID requirements for mail-in ballots. Georgia restricted drop boxes and absentee ballots. Florida established an elections crime unit. Yet come election day, November 8th. For most voters, they're going to find that the experience is very similar um, to, 20, uh, to 2020. The bigger worry, what comes next? More January 6th outrage? Claims of election rigging. Crowds baying for blood. Nancy! Oh, Nancy! Potentially encouraged by candidates who may refuse to lose. Our research shows in these six battleground states, in this November's elections for offices that help certify elections, 53 of 88 Republican candidates are election deniers. That's 60%. 
In Arizona's four major Republican primaries, Steele champions won all of them, worrying other Republicans there. This cannot be accepted because uh, our democracy cannot withstand it. So we have to continue to push back. Like many election deniers, Doug Mastriano says as governor, he would have refused to certify Joe Biden won Pennsylvania. He was in the crowd on January 6th. With or without new election laws, every state's chief election officer has to certify results. Usually, that's the secretary of state. And this November, a number of conservative candidates running for that office are also election deniers. Major? Mark Strassman in Atlanta. Thank you. We're joined now by Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, a Democratic member of the January 6th Select Committee. Congressman, good to see you. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me, Major. So uh, former President Trump says that MAGA Republicans are trying to save democracy and they want to be taken seriously on this issue. So let's review what the former president said this week earlier. He said the 2020 election should be rerun or he should be reinstated in office and that if reelected in 2024, he would provide apologies and full pardons to those charged and or convicted for storming the Capitol on January 6th. Evaluate that. Well, first, if he's saying that the election should be rerun, which is something he's been asserting from the beginning, that's totally outside of the Constitution. There's no procedure for the military just to seize the election machinery and run a new election, which is one of the things that his disgraced former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, was pushing and we know was part of the January 6th plot. Um, And uh, look, more than 60 courts rejected every claim of electoral fraud and corruption, which Donald Trump advanced. Um, He's had the benefit of more than 60 courts, including eight courts where he appointed the judges to office, look at all those claims, and they were all rejected. Uh, It was rejected in the states, and he lost the election. Two of the hallmarks of a fascist political party are, one, they don't accept the results of uh, elections that don't go their way, and two, they embrace political violence. And I think that's why President Biden was right to sound the alarm this week about these continuing attacks on our constitutional order from the outside by Donald Trump and his movement. Let's talk about the January 6th committee. There is conversation about having Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, come in. He has described this committee as a Stalinist show trial. Earlier this year, he said under a Republican-led Congress, members of this committee might be arrested. How do you respond to that remark, those remarks, and what would be the value of him coming in talking to the committee? Well, we're inviting in only people who have relevant evidence and testimony. What's his relevant evidence and testimony? Well, he he has appeared numerous times in uh, throughout the investigation about the attempt to propound the big lie um, and to keep things going long after the election had been settled. But it's interesting that he invokes Stalinism when all of the Stalinists are on Donald Trump's side, like Vladimir Putin, the former head of the KGB, who said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, or the dictator of North Korea, who Donald Trump writes love letters to. The Stalinists are on their side, and they should keep them on that side of the aisle, because our side is fighting for democracy in America. Does the committee still have interest in obtaining testimony from Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas? Um, Look, we're interested in getting testimony from anyone who has relevant evidence about the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election. Let's not lose sight of what we're talking about here. There were disclosures this week that she was in email conversation with people in Wisconsin about that topic. I, I, speaking as one member and only as one member, I would say she has uh, irrelevant testimony to render and she should come forward and give it. I don't want to overstate Uh, her role. We've talked to more than a thousand people, uh, but we'd like to hear from Gingrich and we'd like to hear from her too. What is the probability former Vice President Pence testifies? Well, um, look, Vice President Pence was the target of Donald Trump's wrath and fury in effort to overthrow the election on January 6th. The whole idea was to get Pence to step outside his constitutional role and then to declare unilateral lawless powers to reject electoral college votes from the states. So I think he has uh, a lot of relevant evidence, and I would hope he would come forward and testify about what happened. Voluntarily or via, via subpoena? Well, we're trying to get everybody to come forward voluntarily. But the and subpoena is w- not out of question. 
Um, in no one's case is a subpoena out of question, but I would assume he's going to come forward and testify voluntarily the way the vast majority of people have. One of the mandates of this committee is to create legislation. Ten Republicans on the Senate side have signed on to an Electoral Count Act revision. Is there a bill on the House side? Will there be? And do you expect this to be updated and resolved legislatively either before the midterms or in the lame duck session? Well, we want to take a much broader view, I think. Um, I mean, the narrowest thing you could say is, well, the vice president doesn't have the power to unilaterally rebuff electoral college votes from the state. Clarify that, that. But yeah, but if that's all we do, in a certain sense, it's validating Donald Trump's argument that there was any ambiguity about it in the first place, which there was not. No vice president had ever tried to reject electoral college votes. And Mike Pence and his team ultimately said it was ridiculous. So I think we need to take a much broader view about Donald Trump's attack on the entire electoral college uh, process and the entire democratic process from the counties and the towns and the cities through the states all the way up to the federal government. So I think we got to defend the right to vote and democracy itself. Does that mean the Senate bill would be unacceptable in the House? No, I think it's a it's a good first start. It's a good first offer. But I think we need to look far more systematically at what Donald Trump was trying to do. And we've seen, for example, when he called Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and said, just find me. Uh, 11,781 votes when they tried to intimidate election officers. This was a far more sweeping plot than just what happened in the last couple hours there. We have less than a minute. One of your colleagues on the committee, Adam Kinzinger, said the next step for the committee is to look into the money behind and the money being made off of the big lie. True? Uh, That was an important degree, uh, an important dimension of everything that was happening. This was a Donald Trump operation. So it was always an effort to keep will that be part of the public presentation of the committee coming forward? It will undoubtedly be part of our report and whether, you know, it comes up again in the hearings. I, I can't say yet because we're still working all of that out. There is much anticipation in the nation's capital, possibly across the country, in the report propounded by the committee. When can the country expect to see that? Um, Well, certainly by the end of the year, because, you know, we're like uh, Cinderella at midnight. Uh, Our license runs out at the end of the year. Uh, But under House Resolution 503, that's a significant part of our responsibility to report to the American people about how to prevent coups, insurrections, political violence and attacks on our democratic process going forward. Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Major. Face the Nation will be back in just one moment. Please stay with us. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amiga. Empathy is our best policy. Welcome back. We turn now to Michigan's Democratic Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. Madam Secretary, welcome to Face the Nation and good morning. I know you talk to lots of secretaries of state of both parties as well as election officials nationwide. What are they most worried about as the midterms approach? Violence and disruption on Election Day, first and foremost, uh, and in the the days surrounding the election. And secondly, uh, there's a concern about the ongoing spread of misinformation, which, of course, fuels the potential for additional threats, harassment and and even violence on Election Day. A natural question that viewers might have hearing you just now is, well, is there a plan to deal with violence? Should I be afraid when I go to the polls? There is, and, and, and they should, all voters should know that election officials on both sides of the aisle are working night and day to ensure we're collaborating with law enforcement and every other potential partner 
to protect the sanctity of the polling place and protect the integrity of our democracy. And it's also important to note that we've been doing this work now for close to two years, or over two years, and we've been succeeding really at every turn. Democracy prevailed in 2020. There have been, in Michigan and in other states, no significant attempts, uh, apart from the, the tragedy in our capital on January 6th, uh, to really see disruption of the polling places on election day itself. So we are, um, in many ways, even more prepared this year than ever before, than even than we were in 2020, to ensure that we are eliminating, mitigating, or certainly protecting the system against any potential disruptions. And also speaking clearly to folks who are thinking about interfering with our elections, that the law is clear and we will seek accountability and consequences for anyone who tries to interfere with a citizen's right to vote and democracy itself. Madam Secretary, I want to put things in two different distinct buckets, if I could. Consternation and denialism is one, and curiosity is another. Do you welcome from your constituents in Michigan, and should secretaries of state broadly welcome curiosity, voters who maybe don't believe the election was stolen but have questions? Are you open to that and that engagement? Yes, that is such an important distinction. I think we need to look at things based on truth and evidence. If there are evidence of or questions based on evidence, rooted in evidence of, of any issues around our elections, then yes, we welcome that because the more transparency we have on the process, the more sunlight, the more people can understand really how much work has gone into protecting the security and accessibility of elections for every voter. What's really happened over the last few years is this growth of uh, fact or factless uh, misinformation or, or, or allegations based not on evidence but on uh, aspersions and really geared towards furthering partisan agendas and delegitimizing democracy itself. But if questions are rooted in evidence and if responses are similarly rooted in evidence, then we actually move forward to having a healthy, robust, transparent democracy where everyone can have confidence that their vote is counted and their voice is heard. This next question might be an opportunity for that kind of clarity. So a piece of election equipment from Michigan was recently found on eBay. It had been sold in an auction of some kind. There's a criminal investigation. What's the underlying crime and what do you want to say about that? Well, in Michigan, as in many other states, it's illegal for anyone to have unauthorized access to election equipment. And so we have, for really the past several years, been engaging and working with law, with law enforcement to ensure the security of the equipment. We immediately decommission any equipment uh, that has been found to be potentially compromised. And we ensure that prior to every election, there are accuracy tests for every piece of election equipment so that citizens can feel confident that when they vote on paper ballots, that the machines are securely counting every valid vote. Now, in this case, uh, we had a situation when we're still working with law enforcement to investigate what happened, where not a voting tabulator, but a marking device, a device that's used to assist voters who need assistance in marking their ballot, uh, perhaps may have been inadvertently dropped off at Goodwill, maybe even discarded as something that wasn't clear what it was. We're still finding out those facts, uh, but it's important to note that that's happening in this era of misinformation where people are quick to seize on uh, the potential for machines to be uh, somehow insecure. And our work in Michigan is to, to ensure that any machine that is uh, illegally accessed or even attempted to be illegally accessed is decommissioned and that we only have secure machines in play on Election Day. And again, we test those before every election. Madam Secretary, again, keeping with the theme of transparency, as you know, there is a lawsuit filed in Michigan alleging that the names of deceased voters remained on those rolls longer than they should have. A Biden-appointed federal judge has allowed that lawsuit to continue. What can you say about that? And do you need to do better in Michigan than you have on this particular front? We have maintained and prioritized ensuring the accuracy of our voting list since I took office, including doing a mailing to every voter in the state, a registered voter in the state, so that we could assess whether or not uh, they were uh, still in Michigan. We've also partnered with national collaborations with other states to ensure when voters move to another state uh, that we get that information. With regards to voters who become deceased, we receive information every week from the federal government, Social Security and other sources, and we use that information to, on a weekly, regular basis, ensure that we're tracking and increasing and improving the accuracy of our lists. Uh, now that said, uh, we also welcome the, the uh, suggestions or the input of others. And we've asked uh, individuals who do present us with lists to let us know how they compile this evidence so that we can verify 
whether or not it's actually true. The bottom line is we want to ensure that our lists are accurate, but that we're also not removing voters who are legitimately able to be registered and vote in Michigan. And that's a very technical process. It's one that requires constant vigilance. But we've also set up a website on our uh, michigan.gov slash vote where citizens can learn in granular detail about everything we do on a regular basis to ensure the accuracy of our voting list in Michigan. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Madam Secretary, thanks for taking the questions. Good to see you. Happy Labor Day. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We learned more about the FBI's investigation of former President Trump last week, including new details about what federal agents recovered during the search of Mar-a-Lago last month. To help us with all of this, we are joined by CBS News Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent, that would be Robert Costa, and CBS News Congressional Correspondent, my good friend Scott McFarley. Good morning to you both. Bob, catch the audience up on what we learned and what's most important about that that we, that we learned. Major, good to be with you. A federal judge in Florida decided to unseal more information about what was collected during that FBI search at Mar-a-Lago in early August. What we learned this week were new details, including the fact that there were empty folders marked as classified inside the president's Mar-a-Lago estate. This is a, a serious investigation. Based on my reporting, it also has mounting unanswered questions about why the president had so many former president, had so many documents marked as classified, empty folders. If they are empty, then where was the information that was contained in them? And also questions about if the representations made by his attorneys were truthful to the Justice Department. That's right. The Justice Department has been suggesting in court filings that they're looking into possible obstruction by Trump and his legal team in terms of their engagement with the National Archives as well as with the Justice Department. Scott, fair to say, fairly or not, this has set off a firestorm within the Trump sympathetic community in our country. Has that gotten the attention of prosecutors, judges and others picking up similar suggestions of violence or threats of violence of the kind that preceded January 6th? Exactly. There is a symmetry to what's been said publicly and on social media platforms and chat groups after the search at Mar-a-Lago and what they saw and what they heard January 4th, January 5th, 2021. Talk of civil war, talk of delegitimizing federal law enforcement or federal institutions. And one of the most unequivocal warnings has been coming from D.C. federal judges who are handling the January 6th cases. They warned in the past week of the prospect of another January 6th in 2025, of more political violence. These are the judges, Major, who know the January 6th cases. They know what these defendants had been saying before the attack. And the symmetry of what's being said now is striking and important. Bob, what's your reporting about, Janu about January 2025 and concerns Republicans have looking that far ahead? When I'm on Capitol Hill, that is the point of alarm among some of my top sources. What happens in January 2025 after the next presidential election? And it's up to Congress to decide how this is all certified. And if there are disputes in the states, let's say a state court says one thing, a governor says another, and a legislature says another, how will Congress handle that? And there isn't a clear roadmap at this point because the Electoral Count Act, which has been guiding this process for a long time, has been confusing to many lawmakers. And so, as Congressman Raskin was saying, there are ongoing discussions in the Senate, Senator Manchin, Senator Collins, trying to come up with their own proposal. But some in the House and in the Senate don't believe it goes far enough. For example, the threshold now for an objection is just one senator, one House member. The Senate proposed package is about 20 percent of a chamber's needed for an objection. But some of my sources, Democrat and Republican, are saying, is 20 percent too low for the sustainability of American democracy? Does it need to be more stringent when it comes to how things are objected to? And does it need to be more clear in terms of have, having Congress understand what to consider as a legitimate outcome in a state? Scott, related to the conversation we just had, you're on Capitol Hill every day. Is the atmosphere there still as tense as it was after January 6th? Are members and staff still on edge about the prospect of violence or their own personal safety? Yes. And note the increased security some members of Congress have had to take or get because of the talk in recent weeks, in recent months, and threats against their lives. I'll say something else. The defendants in court from January 6th, when it's time to go ask for leniency, go to sentencing, plead for the mercy of the court, are still so muted, their criticism of Donald Trump, and in some cases still denying the integrity of the 2020 election, the judges and some of the people involved will say that's why they're so concerned about more violence. Even defendants on their day of reckoning 
are still critical. And very quickly, Scott, how much volatility, if any, does it add when the former president says if he's reelected in 2024, he'll grant full pardons? Yeah, it's a potential light to the candle, to the match. It infuses this with more chaos and potentially more denialism of elections. Bob, any thoughts on that real quick? Just to build on Scott's point, January 6th remains a wound that will not heal in this country. It's influencing ongoing investigations. It's influencing Congress and the next election in terms of how people like Doug Mastriano are running in Pennsylvania, people who are linked to January 6th in various ways. Robert Costa, Scott McFarland, thanks so very much. And we will be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We turn now to Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, who before that led the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division during the Clinton administration. He joins us this morning from Richmond, Massachusetts. Governor, thanks for making time. Good to see you. It's a pleasure. Good morning. So you're out of politics now. Your focus at the Kennedy School at Harvard is on leadership. How comfortable were you with President Biden's speech last week and also a speech that Republicans well remember that the president gave earlier this year when he compared changes that Republicans made in voting laws in Georgia to Jim Crow and violent enforced segregation of another era. Are you comfortable with that kind of rhetoric? You know what? Um, A friend of mine says that we've been treating our democracy for a long time in this country as if uh, it would tolerate limitless abuse without breaking. And uh, when you add up the 19 states and their vote suppression laws recently, and you uh, look at that alongside the amount of money, so much of a dark which has been permitted into our politics and our policymaking, the radical purging uh, rules, the the ways in which we have distorted uh, the democratic process as a means to achieve better lives for citizens. It is deeply worrisome and it's gotten worse because of election deniers. So I celebrate the president's uh, speech. You know, any one of us would choose different words But I think it is great that the president, first of all, calls things what they are and uh, and also reminds us that the purpose of democracy is a means to assure uh, liberty and justice for all. And we have to care about that process and that purpose for those reasons. Governor, in our focus group that our audience will see in a few moments of Trump supporters, One pointed out that Democrats raised objections in 2000 and they wouldn't let them go. They raised objections in 2004. Some wouldn't let them go. And in 2016, raised objections and wouldn't let them go. And they consider Democrat criticism of Republican objections to what they saw in 2020 hypocritical. Respond to that. Well, I think it's important for us to hear that, first of all, and to uh, and really try to process that. I think I experienced that differently. I think when when Donald Trump, if what you mean is uh, objections to Donald Trump winning the presidency, I don't think there was any Democrat calling the uh, the election itself illegitimate because the outcome was surprising or disappointing uh, to Democrats. I think it is important, though, to acknowledge that there is frustration that runs pretty deep uh, throughout the political spectrum about democracy as a path to a better future. And that is because I think we've been treating it uh, in uh, in these kind of careless ways for a long, long time. It's a whole other order of magnitude, and that is serious enough, but a whole other order of magnitude to say that uh, democracy is illegitimate uh, unless the outcome is the one you want or the one you voted uh, voted for. I don't think that's what Democrats were objecting to 
uh, in the policy choices of Donald Trump and those who have uh, uh, supported him. That's a very, very different thing. Governor, as you well know, democracy is sustained on a generational basis. You deal a lot, I gather, with leadership and the question thereof with younger American students. What is their orientation to democracy? Do they want direct democracy? And do you have to explain to them we don't have direct democracy in our country? We have representational democracy. And do you work them through that? And what's their level of optimism or pessimism? What, a, what, a, what great questions. First of all, I think the, the students at the Kennedy School, the young people I meet all around the country give me a tremendous amount of encouragement. And, they, and I think they, are, they should encourage all of us. I think their sense of patriotism runs deep. I think their sense of urgency is, uh, is also natural and a thing not to be tamped down uh, because there are unmet needs, many of which um, you know, cross all kinds of differences, reach people in every part of the, of the country, and were undeniable uh, in the experience we all shared going through uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. I think that the notion of being engaged, of, uh, of taking responsibility, for uh, um, for this generation and generations to come is enormously important and encouraging. And one of the things I try to uh, encourage in them is that they look for and think about and reject the false choices that so many of our would-be leaders um, uh, tell us. You know, you don't have to hate the uh, the members of another party to be a member in good standing of your own. In the same way, you don't have to hate business to uh, to advocate for social and economic justice or to hate the police to believe black lives matter but we are sold so many of these kinds of false choices in our current uh, political discourse and i keep encouraging the young people who want to be involved and who are trying to encourage others of all generations to be engaged to be alert to those false choices and reject them because the fact is most people aren't aren't buying 100 percent of what either party is selling. You know that, Major. Governor, we have less than a minute left. Do you think the business and corporate community in America needs to be more involved in the democracy debate? And if so, how? I think the business community is becoming more involved in business leaders in the democracy debate. The question of where they stand as, a, as an entity on any given issue, any given policy is another story. And that's more delicate, I think, for businesses. But the question about whether participatory democracy is a thing to celebrate and encourage and where it is suppressed or frustrated or uh, encumbered uh, to be called out and condemned. I think that's something that business leaders uh, have to show leadership on because that involves all of us. And the truth is capitalism depends on democracy. Former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, thanks so much for your time. To better understand the pulse of Republican politics at the moment, we spoke earlier with a group of voters who would support former President Trump if he ran again in 2024. We began our conversation with the Justice Department's intensifying investigation into the former president for allegedly mishandling classified information. It appears to be politically motivated, but there's no way to be sure because we don't work for the FBI. We don't work for the Biden administration. They're not going to leave him alone. So even if he has done something wrong, um, they'll always be trying to to go after him for something and it'll be the focus. I believe that if it really was about documents, that it could have been handled between the lawyers as it had been being handled. Um, You don't raid the of a former president like he's a the drug dealer down the street with the whites and the guys with the guns and um, it wasn't necessary. Can I trust that what they say that they so supposedly found is really found? I can't. Mm-hmm. I'll never believe it. Right. When Senator Lindsey Graham Joanne said that if the former president is indicted. There will be riots in the street, streets. Do you agree with that? And do you feel comfortable with a senator saying something like that? No, I wish Lindsey Graham had not voiced it that way. Um, I think if he's indicted, um, there will be a lot of unhappy people. But I do not believe that MAGA Republicans are going to be rioting in the streets. I don't see there being rioting. If there were going to, <clears throat> there was going to be any rioting in the streets, it would have been when the last election was stolen. It wouldn't be over this issue. 
Let me pick up on that, Steve. You just said the last election was stolen. How was it stolen? Uh, I saw the video out of Georgia. That they cleared everybody out of the, the polling place. And as soon as everybody was gone, they pulled suitcases full of um, ballots out of uh, underneath tables and started processing. And the next morning, the entire outcome was different. Steve, does it matter to you that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation looked into that and decided itself that there was nothing wrong there? I have to believe my own two eyes. I watched it happen on video. Yeah, we know video can be doctored today but I'm not buying it. I'm a pretty bright guy. What I see, I believe, mm -hmm. at least half of it. Does it matter that two U.S. attorneys, both of them appointed by former President Trump, looked into it and did not consider that activity fraudulent? Does that matter to you? It gives me pause. It makes me think more deeply about it. But again, I have to believe what I see. Uh, Mary, do you believe the 2020 election was stolen? I wouldn't necessarily say that it was stolen, but I believe that it was unfair. People don't know their history then because they don't know how Democrats argued over the 2000 election. Obviously, they you know said the Supreme Court elected mm -hmm. uh, George W. Bush. And then again in 2004, it was the same thing. To that point, and I don't disagree with you at all. I've covered 2000. I covered 2004. I well remember the instances you described them. You described them accurately. But I remember a phrase that my grandmother used to use, which is two wrongs don't make a right. And I wonder how you process that wisdom from my grandmother in this context. I think two wrongs don't make a right, but I don't think hypocrisy is very flattering as well. Joanne, uh, about two wrongs don't make a right. I understand that there is a history on both sides. I'm just wondering if you're comfortable and if you have any anxiety about the future of democracy, if both sides use that as an excuse against one another and we never get anywhere. You're absolutely correct. If every side is going to say after they lose, we really didn't lose, then, yeah, I mean, elections will become something that nobody's ever going to be happy with. You just said the, the question of democracy. Mm -hmm. But isn't democracy arguing, debating? Um, so if the precedent has been set that you can question elections. I mean, you can question everything in a democracy. Sure. So it's getting to somebody like me, um, who's not a Republican or a Democrat, but I do support Trump. It's getting really old hearing democracy, 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 because what we're doing is part of a democracy. And the way Joe Biden and the Democrats use it as a weapon, the, the, the term democracy has become a weapon. And it just means that if you're afraid that Republicans are a threat to democracy, what you're telling me is that you're, you're afraid that Republicans are a threat to your power and your agenda. And so I'm, I think we need to go back and, and have a better understanding of what democracy actually is. Steve, let me follow up with you. What are your feelings about the upcoming midterms? Do you have confidence in the election results you will see reported either that night or the following days? No, my confidence in that area has been shaken for a long time. Mary, can I ask you the same question? How do you feel about the coming midterms and the election results that will be reported? For the most part, yeah, I'm confident. Okay. Joanne, how about you? Um, the Democrat Party has spent a lot of money to prop up what they call MAGA candidates in the upcoming November election. Candidates that they figured once they got there, the Democrat could be. But then the president the other night basically told everyone that we can't have the MAGA Republicans in office at all, because we're going to destroy the country. So... I'm, I don't know. It, it concerns me. I, I thought we were going to do very well in November. Steve, if I could ask you, if former President Trump were not to declare for 2024, do you have an alternative who is already a favorite of yours? Ron DeSantos. In fact, I'd love to see a DeSantos Trump ticket. Mary, if former President Trump were not to run, do you have an alternate favorite, alternate favorite already? 
Yeah, definitely Governor DeSantis, but I have family in Florida and I would hate to steal such a great governor from them. Joanne? Oh, definitely DeSantis. Ron DeSantis all the way if it can't be Trump. And Joanne, let me just follow up with you. Why? What is it that's so attractive about Governor DeSantis? When DeSantis sees an issue, he takes it on. He's not afraid to take on anything, nor does Donald Trump. Mary, your thoughts about Governor DeSantis? Well, I think I think Republican politicians need to pay attention to him and how he governs and how he deals with the press. Um, he goes on offense like we haven't seen except with President Trump. I appreciate your time, but I want to open the floor if anyone wants to add anything that uh, is still on their minds that I haven't gotten to. I, I am a MAGA um, Republican, and I'm not a threat to anybody. And I just appreciate the fact of being able to say that. I, I don't want to hurt anyone. Um, I don't want to destroy the democracy. Um, I want this country to be great again. Um, that's what I want. And that's all it means, MAGA, to be great again, make America great again. And that is something that I'd like to see happen, um, hopefully sooner rather than later. Well said, Joanne. Thank you for listening to me. And we'll be back in a moment. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Political violence and riots can often be traced back to the rise of online extremism. We spoke earlier with two experts on the problem and its potential solutions. Jared Holt, the senior research manager at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and Karen Kornblue, the head of the German Marshall Fund's Digital Innovations and Democracy Initiative. We began by asking them to describe the relationship between the Internet and democracy. Tenuous. Uh, the Internet in the way that it is monetized in the current age is through attention. You can get a lot of attention saying crazy stuff. And we're seeing uh, a lot of people do that, frankly. Uh, so, you know, as long as the business model of the internet is built around trying to captivate audiences and keep them clicking, reacting, whether that's through rage or diehard support, uh, it, it's going to be in conflict with democracy because democracy is not about what gets the most attention. It's supposed to be about you know, what the best ideas are. How do we compromise? How do we move forward? Um, and this attention-based economy online is incongruent with that mission. Karen, complete the sentence. Internet's relationship to democracy is? It's fraught. It's definitely fraught. In the early days of the internet, it offered incredible promise, and it still does. You know, all of these movements, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, were able to gain steam online, and that it just continues to offer the kind of promise of educating people, informing them, connecting them. Um, but these algorithms really have contributed to the crisis we're in, and uh, the platforms have a real responsibility to fix them uh, and to, to help fix the problem that they've helped create. Jared, from a libertarian perspective, one might argue, look, people are out there. They decide what they want to consume. There is agency, as you indicated. So the Internet isn't a problem. These people are out there. They have their beliefs and they're going to pursue it. Or is it that you're arguing the Internet is an accelerator and a multiplier? 
It's an accelerator and a multiplier. Um, this kind of content, conspiratorial content, uh, extremist movements have existed in America for as long as America has been around, right? These platforms are designed guiding people towards more extreme content, uh, what they're not taking down, what they're giving a free pass to, people who are using these platforms to manipulate audiences and guide them and steer them. From your perspective, is January 6th and its magnitude impossible without this multiplier accelerationist effect? It's very safe to say that it wouldn't have happened the way that it did at the scale that it did coming together as fast as it did without the internet. A lot of attention was paid to fringe platforms like Parler after the riot, but a lot of the you know agitation and calls to action were happening on mainstream platforms from mainstream figures. For those on the right who say, you're missing this whole point. The point is we get canceled, we get deplatformed, and that's big tech silencing us. So our rights are the ones being trampled, you would say? This is the danger of the whack-a-mole solution. Not only is it ineffective, too little, too late, but it also raises all kinds of free expression concerns because it takes down content, it takes down people after the fact. I'd love to see the platforms not only fix their algorithms, but when they publish their terms of service, really commit themselves to enforce what they've put out there um, and not have so much discretion. It's this kind of discretion that I think really bothers people and makes them feel that they can't get on these very few opportunities uh, for speech. Jared, what happened in these places you were describing, Parler, Getter, other parts of the web that maybe aren't as well-trafficked as others after the Mar-a-Lago execution of a search warrant? It, these spaces online, pro-Trump forums, fringe platforms, uh, just really erupted with violent rhetoric. These false beliefs that the FBI or uh, law enforcement is out to get conservatives and Trump supporters specifically. Uh, but we saw that paired with also a lot of uh, violent rhetoric. Taking their existing beliefs that the system's compromised and ratcheting it up to the next level, saying, you know, we need to do something, whether that's protesting or whether that's taking it as far as that individual in Cincinnati did trying to breach uh, the FBI office there. Karen, what could Congress do? There's bipartisan concern, but there is really not bipartisan action. Uh, the proposals on algorithmic accountability, I think, offer real promise, but so far they don't include any kind of enforcement mechanism. Given the tinderbox that we're in, I think we really have to turn to the platforms and ask them to step up. What are you looking at in terms of these realities? They're not going to change before the midterm elections and multiplier effects, accelerationist effect on the web heading toward the midterms. There are two things, two urgent things that I would say that the platforms could do. First, they should stop uh, siloing people, directing people into these bubbles that reinforce extremist worldviews and don't let in opposing viewpoints. And second, they should really work with the providers of important civic information, people like election administration officials, to help them amplify accurate information so that people can be empowered and actually know what's going on. What does this conversation and these underlying realities mean as America grapples with what appears to be a rise in white nationalism, white supremacy? The Internet has been a, a really powerful tool for extremist movements in the U.S. It's been a big accelerant. It's been a big boon. And we've seen consistently on platforms, you know, they all have kind of red lines that content is not supposed to cross over. If it crosses over, if it's you know particularly violent, particularly racist, uh, that kind of material will get banned. But the content that walks right up to that line, that sort of tiptoes on that line, is among the highest performing content uh, on these websites. It's not a level playing field. Um, and that unlevel playing field has been, you know, definitely an accelerant of these issues that we're seeing uh, rise up in American prominence. The kind of stuff that we're talking about today, whether it's misinformation, conspiracy theories, et cetera, Everybody is vulnerable to this. Rich people, poor people, smart people, not so smart people. Everybody can fall victim to this stuff. And it has to do with the manipulative nature of the content. 
And I just think it's really important to stress that. We will be right back. Well, that's it for us today. We thank you so much for watching. Margaret will be back next week for Face the Nation. I'm Major Garrett. Today's guests were Maryland Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, former Governor of Massachusetts Deval Patrick, a focus group with Trump supporters, Karen Kornblue from the German Marshall Fund, and Jared Holt from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. on Sundays. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.